This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. On War by Karl von Clausewitz, translated by Colonel J. J. Graham. Book Three, Chapter Eleven, Assembly of Forces in Space. The best strategy is always to be very strong, first generally, then at the decisive point. Therefore, apart from the energy which creates the army, a work which is not always done by the general, there is no more imperative and no simpler law for strategy than to keep the forces concentrated. No portion is to be separated from the main body unless called away by some urgent necessity. On this maxim we stand firm, and look upon it as a guide to be depended upon. What are the reasonable grounds on which a detachment of forces may be made, we shall learn by degrees. Then we shall also see that this principle cannot have the same general effects in every war, but that these are different according to the means and end. It seems incredible, and yet it has happened a hundred times, the troops have been divided and separated merely through a mysterious feeling of conventional manner without any clear perception of the reason if the concentration of the whole force is acknowledged as the norm and every division and separation as an exception which must be justified then not only will that folly be completely avoided but also many an erroneous ground for separating troops will be barred admission Chapter 12. Assembly of Forces in Time We have here to deal with a conception which in real life diffuses many kinds of illusory light. A clear definition and development of the idea is therefore necessary, and we hope to be allowed a short analysis. War is the shock of two opposing forces in collision with each other, from which it follows, as a matter of course, that the stronger not only destroys the other, but carries it forward with its movement. This fundamentally admits of no successive action of powers, but makes the simultaneous application of all forces intended for the shock appear as a primordial law of war. So it is in reality, but only so far as the struggle resembles also in practice a mechanical shock. But when it consists in a lasting mutual action of destructive forces, then we can certainly imagine a successive action of forces. This is the case in tactics, principally because firearms form the basis of all tactics, but also from other reasons as well. If in a fire combat a thousand men are opposed to five hundred, then the gross loss is calculated from the amount of the enemy's force and our own. One thousand men fire twice as many shots as five hundred, but no more shots will take effect on the thousand than on the five hundred, because it is assumed that they stand closer order than the other. If we were to suppose the number of hits to be double, then the losses on each side would be equal. From the 500 there would be, for example, 200 disabled, and out of the body of a 1,000, likewise the same. Now, if the 500 had kept another body of equal number quite out of the fire, then both sides would have 800 effective men. But of these... On the one side there would be 500 men quite fresh, fully supplied with ammunition, and in their full vigour. On the other side, only 800 all alike shaken in their order, in want of sufficient ammunition, and weakened in physical force. 
the assumption that a thousand men merely on account of their greater number would lose twice as many as five hundred would have lost in their place is certainly not correct therefore the greater loss which the side suffers that has placed the half of its force in reserve must be regarded as a disadvantage in that original formation further it must be admitted that in the generality of cases the thousand men would have the advantage at the first commencement of being able to drive their opponent out of his position and force him to a retrograde movement now whether these two advantages are a counterpoise to the disadvantage of finding ourselves with eight hundred men to a certain extent disorganized by the combat opposed to an enemy who is not materially weaker in numbers and who has five hundred quite fresh troops is one that cannot be decided by pursuing an analysis further we must here rely upon experience and there will scarcely be an officer experienced in war who will not in the generality of cases assign the advantage to that side which has the fresh troops in this way it becomes evident how the employment of too many forces in combat may be disadvantageous for whatever advantages the superiority may give in the first moment we may have to pay dearly for in the next but this danger only endures as long as the disorder the state of confusion and weakness lasts in a word up to the crisis which every combat brings with it even for the conqueror within the duration of this relaxed state of exhaustion the appearance of a proportionate number of fresh troops is decisive but when this disordering effect of victory stops and therefore only the moral superiority remains which every victory gives then it is no longer possible for fresh troops to restore the combat they would only be carried along in the general movement a beaten army cannot be brought back to victory a day after by means of a strong reserve here we find ourselves at the source of a highly material difference between tactics and strategy the tactical results the results within the four corners of the battle and before its close lie for the most part within the limits of that period of disorder and weakness but the strategic result that is to say the result of the total combat of the victories realized let them be small or great lies completely beyond outside of that period it is only when the results of partial combats have bound themselves together into an independent whole that the strategic result appears but then the state of crisis is over the forces have resumed their original form and are now only weakened to the extent of those actually destroyed placed hors de combat the consequence of this difference is that tactics can make a continued use of forces strategy only a simultaneous one if i cannot in tactics decide all by the first success if i have to fear the next moment it follows of itself that i employ only so much of my force for that success of the first moment as appears sufficient for that object and keep the rest beyond the reach of fire or conflict of any kind in order to be able to oppose fresh troops to fresh or with such to overcome those that are exhausted but it is not so in strategy partly as we have just shown it has not so much reason to fear a reaction after a success realized because with that success the crisis stops partly all the forces strategically employed are not necessarily weakened only so much of them as have been tactically in conflict with the enemy's force that is engaged in partial combat are weakened by it consequently only so much as was unavoidably necessary but by no means 
all which was strategically in conflict with the enemy unless tactics has expended them unnecessarily corps which on account of the general superiority in numbers have either been little or not at all engaged whose presence alone has assisted in the result are after the decision the same as they were before and for new enterprises as efficient as if they had been entirely inactive how greatly such corps which thus constitute our excess may contribute to the total success is evident in itself indeed it is not difficult to see how they may even diminish considerably the loss of the forces engaged in tactical conflict on our side if therefore in strategy the loss does not increase with the number of troops employed but is often diminished by it and if as a natural consequence the decision in our favour is by that means the more certain then it follows that in strategy we can never employ too many forces and consequently also they must be applied simultaneously to the immediate purpose but we must vindicate this proposition upon another ground we have hitherto only spoken of the combat itself it is the real activity in war but men time and space which appear as the elements of this activity must at the same time be kept in view and the results of their influence brought into consideration also fatigue exertion and privation constitute in war a special principle of destruction not essentially belonging to contest but more or less inseparably bound up with it and certainly one which especially belongs to strategy they no doubt exist in tactics as well and perhaps they are in the higher degree but as the duration of the tactical acts is shorter therefore the small effects of exertion and privation on them can come but little into consideration but in strategy on the other hand where time and space are on a larger scale their influence is not only always very considerable but quite often decisive it is not at all uncommon for a victorious army to lose many more by sickness than on the field of battle if therefore we look at the sphere of destruction in strategy in the same manner as we have considered that of fire and close combat in tactics then we may well imagine that everything which comes within its vortex will at the end of the campaign or any other strategic period be reduced to a state of weakness which makes the arrival of a fresh force decisive we might therefore conclude that there is a motive in the one case as well as the other to strive for the first success with as few forces as possible in order to keep up this fresh force for the last in order to estimate exactly this conclusion which in many cases in practice will have a great appearance of truth we must direct our attention to the separate ideas which it contains in the first place we must not confuse the notion of reinforcement with that of fresh unused troops there are few campaigns at the end of which an increase of force is not earnestly desired by the conqueror as well as the conquered and indeed should appear decisive but that is not the point here for the increase of force could not be necessary if the force had been so much larger at the first but it would be contrary to all experience to suppose that an army coming fresh into the field is to be esteemed higher in point of moral value than an army already in the field just as a tactical reserve is more to be esteemed than a body of troops which has been already severely handled in the fight just as much as an unfortunate campaign lowers the courage and moral powers of an army a successful one raises these elements in their value in the generality of cases therefore these influences are compensated and then there remains over and above as clear gain the habituation of war we should besides look more here to successful than to unsuccessful campaigns 
because when the greater probability of the latter may be seen beforehand without doubt forces are wanted and therefore the reserving a portion for future use is out of the question this point being settled then the question is do the losses which a force sustains through fatigues and privations increase in proportion to the size of the force as in the case in combat and to that we answer no the fatigues of war result in a great measure from the dangers with which every moment of the active war is more or less impregnated to encounter these dangers at all points to proceed onwards with security in the execution of one's plans gives employment to a multitude of agencies which make up the tactical and strategic service of the army this service is more difficult the weaker an army is and easier as its numerical superiority over the enemy increases who can doubt this the campaign against a much weaker enemy will therefore cost smaller efforts than against one who is just as strong or stronger so much for the fatigues it is somewhat different with the privations they consist chiefly of two things the want of food and the want of shelter for the troops either in quarters or in suitable camps both these wants will no doubt be in greater proportion as the number of men on one spot is greater but does not the superiority in force afford also the best means of spreading out and finding more room and therefore more means of subsistence and shelter if bonaparte in his invasion of russia in eighteen twelve concentrated his army in great masses upon one single road in a manner never heard of before and thus caused privations equally unparalleled we must ascribe it to his maxim that it is impossible to be too strong at the decisive point whether in this instance he did not strain the principle too far is a question which would be out of place here but it is certain that if he had made a point of avoiding the stress which was by that means brought about he had only to advance on a greater breadth of front room was not wanted for the purpose in russia and in very few cases can it be wanted therefore from this no ground can be deduced to prove that the simultaneous employment of very superior forces must produce greater weakening but now supposing that in spite of the general relief afforded by setting apart a portion of the army wind and weather and the toils of war had produced a diminution even on the part which as a spare force would have been reserved for later use still we must take a comprehensive general view of the whole and therefore ask will this diminution of force suffice to counterbalance the gain in forces which we through our superiority in numbers may be able to make in more ways than one but there still remains a most important point to be noticed in a partial combat the force required to obtain a great result can be approximately estimated without much difficulty and consequently we can form an idea of what is superfluous in strategy this may be said to be impossible because the strategic result has no such well-defined object and no such circumscribed limits as the tactical thus what can be looked upon in tactics as an excess of power may be regarded in strategy as a means to give expansion to success if opportunity offers for it with the magnitude of the success the gain in force increases at the same time and in this way the superiority of numbers may soon reach a point which the most careful economy of forces could never have attained by means of his enormous numerical superiority bonaparte was enabled to reach moscow in eighteen twelve and to take that central capital had he by means of this superiority 
succeeded in completely defeating the russian army he would in all probability have concluded a peace in moscow which in any other way was much less attainable this example is used to explain the idea not to prove it which would require a circumstantial demonstration for which this is not the place all these reflections bear merely upon the idea of a successive employment of forces and not upon the conception of a reserve properly so called which they no doubt come in contact with throughout but which as we shall see in the following chapter is connected with some other considerations what we desire to establish here is that if in tactics the military force through the mere duration of actual employment suffers a diminution of power if time therefore appears as a factor in the result this is not the case in strategy in a material degree the destructive effects which are also produced upon the forces in strategy by time are partly diminished through their mass partly made good in other ways and therefore in strategy it cannot be an object to make time an ally on its own account by bringing troops successively into action we say on its own account for the influence which time on account of other circumstances which it brings about but which are different from itself can have indeed must necessarily have for one of the two parties is quite another thing it is anything but indifferent or unimportant and will be the subject of consideration hereafter the rule which we have been seeking to set forth is therefore that all forces which are available and destined for a strategic object should be simultaneously applied to it and this application will be so much more the complete the more everything is compressed into one act and into one movement but still there is in strategy a renewal of effort and a persistent action which as a chief means towards the ultimate success is more particularly not to be overlooked it is the continual development of new forces this is also the subject of another chapter and we only refer to it here in order to prevent the reader from having something in view of which we have not been speaking we now turn to a subject very closely connected with our present considerations which must be settled before full light can be thrown on the whole we mean the strategic reserve chapter thirteen strategic reserve a reserve has two objects which are very distinct from each other namely first the prolongation and renewal of the combat and secondly for use in case of unforeseen events the first object implies the utility of a successive application of forces and on that account cannot occur in strategy cases in which a corps is sent to succour a point which is supposed to be about to fall are plainly to be placed in the category of the second object as the resistance which has to be offered here could not have been sufficiently foreseen but a corps which is destined expressly to prolong the combat and with that object in view is placed in the rear would be only a corps placed out of reach of fire but under the command and at the general disposition of the general commanding in the action and accordingly would be a tactical and not a strategic reserve but the necessity for a force ready for unforeseen events may also take place in strategy and consequently there may also be a strategic reserve but only where unforeseen events are imaginable in tactics 
where the enemy's measures are generally first ascertained by direct sight, and where they may be concealed by every wood, every fold of undulating ground, we must naturally always be alive more or less to the possibility of unforeseen events, in order to strengthen, subsequently, those points which appear too weak, and in fact to modify generally the disposition of our troops, so as to make it correspond better to that of the enemy. Such cases must also happen in strategy, because the strategic act is directly linked to the tactical. In strategy also, many a measure is first adopted in consequence of what is actually seen, or in consequence of uncertain reports arriving from day to day, or even from hour to hour, and lastly from the actual results of the combats. It is, therefore, an essential condition of strategic command that, according to the degree of uncertainty, forces must be kept in reserve against future contingencies. In the defensive generally, but particularly in the defence of certain obstacles of ground like rivers, hills and such, such contingencies, as is well known, happen constantly. But this uncertainty diminishes in proportion as the strategic activity has less of the tactical character and ceases almost altogether in those regions where it borders on politics. The direction in which the enemy leads his columns to the combat can be perceived by actual sight only. Where he intends to pass a river is learned from a few preparations which are made shortly before. The line by which he proposes to invade our country is usually announced by all the newspapers before a pistol shot has been fired. The greater the nature of the measure, the less it will take the enemy by surprise. Time and space are so considerable, the circumstances out of which the action proceeds so public and little susceptible to alteration, that the coming event is either made known in good time or can be discovered with reasonable certainty. On the other hand, the use of a reserve in this province of strategy, even if one were available, will always be less efficacious the more the measure has a tendency towards being one of a general nature. We have seen that the decision of a partial combat is nothing in itself, but that all partial combats only find their complete solution in the decision of the total combat. But even this decision of the total combat has only a relative meaning of many different gradations, according as the force over which the victory has been gained forms a more or less great and important part of the whole. The lost battle of a corps may be repaired by the victory of the army. Even the lost battle of an army may not only be counterbalanced by the gain of a more important one, but converted into a fortunate event. The two days of Kulm, August 29 and 30, 1813. No one can doubt this, but it is just as clear that the weight of each victory, the successful issue of each total combat, is so much the more substantial, the more important the part conquered, and that therefore the possibility of repairing the loss by subsequent events diminishes in the same proportion. In another place we shall have to examine this in more detail. It suffices for the present to have drawn attention to the indubitable existence of this progression. If we now add lastly to these two considerations the third, which is that if the persistent use of forces in tactics always shifts the general result to the end of the whole act, law of the simultaneous use of forces in strategy, on the contrary, lets the principal result, which need not be the final one, 
take place almost always at the commencement of the great or whole act then in these three results we have ground sufficient to find strategic reserves always more superfluous always more useless always more dangerous the more general their destination the point where the idea of a strategic reserve begins to become inconsistent is not difficult to determine it lies in the supreme decision employment must be given to all the forces within the space of the supreme decision and every reserve active force available which is only intended for use after that decision is opposed to common sense if therefore tactics has in its reserves the means of not only meeting unforeseen dispositions on the part of the enemy but also of repairing that which can never be foreseen the result of the combat should that be unfortunate strategy on the other hand must at least as far as relates to the capital result renounce the use of these means as a rule it can only repair the losses sustained at one point by advantages gained at another in a few cases by moving troops from one point to another the idea of preparing such reserves by placing forces in reserve beforehand can never be entertained in strategy we have pointed out as an absurdity the idea of a strategic reserve which is not to cooperate in the capital result and as it is so beyond doubt we should not have been led into such an analysis as we have made in these two chapters were it not that in the disguise of other ideas it looks like something better and frequently makes its appearance one person sees in it the acme of strategic sagacity and foresight another rejects it and with it the idea of any reserve consequently even of a tactical one this confusion of ideas is transferred to real life and if we would see a memorable instance of it we have only to call to mind that prussia in eighteen o six left a reserve of twenty thousand men cantoned in the mark under prince eugene of wurtemberg which could not possibly reach the saal in time to be of any use and that another force of twenty five thousand men belonging to this power remained in east and south prussia destined only to be put on a war footing afterwards as a reserve after these examples we cannot be accused of having been fighting with windmills chapter fourteen economy of forces the road of reason as we have said seldom allows itself to be reduced to a mathematical line by principles and opinions there remains always a certain margin but it is the same in all the practical arts of life for the lines of beauty there are no abscissi and ordinates circles and ellipses are not described by means of their algebraical formulae the actor in war therefore soon finds he must trust himself to the delicate tact of judgment which founded on natural quickness of perception and educated by reflection almost unconsciously seizes upon the right he soon finds that at one time he must simplify the law by reducing it to some prominent characteristic points which form his rules that at another the adopted method must become the staff on which he leans as one of these simplified characteristic points as a mental appliance we look upon the principle of watching continually over the cooperation of all forces or in other words of keeping constantly in view that no part of them should ever be idle whoever has forces 
where the enemy does not give them sufficient employment, whoever has part of his forces on the march, that is, allows them to lie dead, while the enemies are fighting, he is a bad manager of his forces. In this sense, there is a waste of forces, which is even worse than their employment to no purpose. If there must be action, then the first point is that all parts act, because the most purposeless activity still keeps employed and destroys a portion of the enemy's force, whilst troops completely inactive are for the moment quite neutralized. Unmistakably, this idea is bound up with the principles contained in the last three chapters. It is the same truth, but seen from a somewhat more comprehensive point of view and condensed into a single conception. Chapter 15. Geometrical Element The length to which the geometrical element, or form in the disposition of military force in war, can become a predominant principle, we see in the art of fortification, where geometry looks after the great and the little. Also, in tactics, it plays a great part. It is the basis of elementary tactics, or the theory of moving troops. But in field fortification, as well as in the theory of positions and of their attack, its angles and lines rule like lawgivers who have to decide the contest. Many things here were at one time misapplied, and others were mere fribbles. Still, however, in the tactics of the present day, in which in every combat the aim is to surround the enemy, the geometrical element has attained anew a great importance in a very simple but constantly recurring application. Nevertheless, in tactics where all is more movable, where the moral forces, individual traits, and chance are more influential than in a war of sieges, the geometrical element can never attain to the same degree of supremacy as in the latter. But less still is its influence in strategy. Certainly here also, form in the disposition of troops, the shape of countries and states is of great importance, but the geometrical element is not decisive as in fortification, and not nearly so important as in tactics. The manner in which this influence exhibits itself can only be shown by degrees at those places where it makes its appearance, and deserves notice. Here we wish more to direct attention to the difference which there is between tactics and strategy in relation to it. In tactics, time and space quickly dwindle to their absolute minimum. If a body of troops is attacked in flank and rear by the enemy, it soon gets to a point where retreat no longer remains. Such a position is very close to an absolute impossibility of continuing to fight. It must therefore extricate itself from it, or avoid getting into it. This gives to all combinations aiming at this from the first commencement a great efficiency, which chiefly consists in the disquietude which it causes the enemy as to consequences. This is why the geometrical disposition of the forces is such an important factor in the tactical product. In strategy, this is only faintly reflected on account of the greater space and time. We do not fire from one theatre of war upon another, and often weeks and months must pass before a strategic movement designed to surround the enemy can be executed. Further, the distances are so great that the probability of hitting the right point at last, even with the best arrangements, is but small. In strategy, therefore, the scope for such combinations, that is, for those resting on the geometrical element, is much smaller, 
and for the same reason the effect of an advantage once actually gained at any point is much greater such advantage has time to bring all its effects to maturity before it is disturbed or quite neutralized therein by any counteracting apprehensions we therefore do not hesitate to regard as an established truth that in strategy more depends on the number and magnitude of victorious combats than on the form of the great lines by which they are connected a view just the reverse has been a favourite theme of modern theory because a great importance was supposed to be thus given to strategy and as the higher functions of the mind were seen in strategy it was thought by that means to ennoble war and as it was said through a new substitution of ideas to make it more scientific we hold it to be one of the principal uses of a complete theory openly to expose such vagaries and as the geometrical element is the fundamental idea from which theory usually proceeds therefore we have expressly brought out this point in strong relief End of Book 3, Chapters 11 through 15. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.